If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. I'm going to be honest. I am not Kim Hakem. Uh, I do uh, want to thank her for the opportunity to step in and host for her this week. Uh, my name is Steve Winterfeld. I'm the advisory CISO for Akamai. Uh, I've done a few of the FutureCon events and, and been on this show, but uh, first time I've been allowed to host, so I'm really excited about this opportunity. Uh, this week, we're talking about zero days should not be a fire drill. Uh, and I want to bring on uh, our our guest speaker today. Uh, Sean, why don't you come on and introduce yourself? Uh, good afternoon. And, and Steve, thank you for having me. I'm Sean Flynn. Um, I am the um, Director of Security Technology and Strategy at Akamai. So no secret, uh, we actually know each other. Looking forward to beating you up today. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, if you start beating me up, I'll just go technical. <laughs> so I um, want to start off with a little bit of, of stuff I'm seeing kind of in the news. It is the season. Uh, starting to see more and more of the, the predictions coming out in the summaries. Uh, I enjoy the summaries. The predictions are already always interesting. Uh, I hate when I'm asked for predictions because, you know, it's, the attacks are going to get bigger, uh, but what about the unknown attacks? Well, I don't know. And so uh, always interesting to read the predictions. Um, another trend I'm seeing, you know, we we started off in that natural evolution in compliance and legislation. And for a while, we were very focused on privacy. And then we started to see data sovereignty or data localization, you know, where where German data had to, German citizens data had to stay in Germany. And now we're seeing resiliency come into more and more legislation. Um, and so I'm seeing uh, in Europe, we have DORA, the Digital Operational uh, Resiliency Act. And, and so it'll be interesting to see where we go with this. It's worth paying attention to. If you don't kind of have your resiliency plan defined, it may be time to start thinking through that, uh, going out and looking, you know, how do you want to address this? How do you want to have that as part of your program? And the last is just kind of sharing an, an interesting uh, discussion we had when we're talking about summarizing this year. Um, you know, everybody's talked about ransomware. And I really enjoyed the opportunity. You know, there was an FBI internet crime report came out. And one of the things it talked about was how profitable different cyber business models were. And so there was this kind of a page that said ransomware was way down the list on how much money it had stolen and business email compromise was at the top. And so I always think it's, it's kind of that challenge when we're thinking about true risk to not necessarily follow the headlines, but where the really impactful risk is. And that's that business email compromise, someone coming in and, and saying, hey, you know, this is an email from the CEO. This is under SEC filings. You can't share with anybody. We're, we're doing an M&A and, and we're buying another company and send $13 million to this bank account. Um, those can be very painful. 
So Sean, what are you thinking? What are you hearing nowadays about uh, the big news? So um, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm on a bit of an opposite view on ransomware. I don't think we've fully uh, seen uh, what what's out there. And I, I'm saying that because the trends that we're seeing in phishing campaigns, um, you know, phishing campaigns have really kind of blown through the roof in the last several years. Uh, it's very easy now to get credentials to networks by um, by setting up phishing kits. Uh, and the other thing that, that we saw that was pretty dramatic from 2020 to the last couple of years is that application attacks have kind of shifted away from the data breach, which is the typical, what we expect, um, you know, SQL injection type things that we expect as like the number one attack. And it's shifted now into attacks that are focusing on uh, uh, infiltrating the server, which then could infiltrate the, the, the network itself. So I think that there are a lot of attackers that are now starting to, to utilize applications to see if they can't find a door within the, the network to expose uh, ransomware. So I, I think that we're still, we're still gonna, there's still gonna be a lot of growth there. Uh, yeah, newsflash, uh, attacks are gonna rise. Um, <laughs> yes, um, so a great lead in with the general attacks. Um, can, you know, as you talk about those attacks, what you see coming next, what are the, some, you know, we're going to dig into zero days today, but do you have any thoughts on some of the historical attacks or trends you've seen on that side? I know for me, I, I think, uh, again, I like to think in evolution. I like to think of next generation. So in retail, when I was at Nordstrom, um, it was focusing on, you know, first they went after the credit card numbers. So PCI. And, and then we kind of protected the credit cards and, the, and then they were after PII. And so we protected that personal information. And then they turned around and went after the gift cards. And so then it was like all the way back to square one, we're protecting the gift cards. And then, you know, then it was account takeovers. What kind of trends or what are you seeing on that side? So yeah, I remember uh, back in the day mitigating attacks when account takeover wasn't even like the verbiage that was used. I think they called them carters. Uh, in fact, I remember a headline uh, from an attack that, that I kind of was a part of uh, defending against, and it was like Vietnamese Carter, you know, cartel has been arrested. Um, and and I remember fighting an attack against, I think it was a hotel and travel customer um, with a web application firewall, which at the time, you know, trying to fight a botnet with, with an application firewall is, is really difficult. Um, and we had to be really creative on the rules. And it, and it was definitely kind of... Um, the very beginning when when account takeover took off. Um, and I wish to say, I wish I could say that, that that's kind of started to subside, but it really hasn't. Um, you know, I know we've seen, gosh, you know, across our platform last year was 200 billion credential abuse attacks. Uh, so I still think that that's, that's uh, getting worse, but I also see trends, um, you know, typically account takeover is done by, uh, the, the credential stuffing parts done by bots. I think that's now moving more to manual. And I think phishing campaigns and getting credentials through phishing campaigns is another way to get credentials so they don't have to use bots. So I think companies are now having to worry about uh, how to trust the user. Is the person logging in truly the user? Um, and how do I validate that it is the user? And I think that's for retail and for finance. I think those are definitely even gaming um, and, and even some high tech uh, technology uh, industries. That, that's those are the challenges that I think they're facing right now. You know, and we always talk about people, processes, and technology. And Jonathan has a great question here. It's really around, you know, are you seeing 
The tools and security awareness training is helping organizations get better at, at mitigation and prevention. I think that um, I think that they do. Obviously, I mean any any type of awareness. Uh, getting security um, into people's minds and doing it more often is going to help. Um, is it the silver bullet? No. Um, I was just talking to a peer that was in another uh, industry, and um, he fell for a um, a, a phishing uh, test that their company was running because he was tired. It, he wasn't paying attention. It happened to have enough of an, an interest for him to think that it might have been coming from inside, and he clicked on it and. That's not something that I think simply awareness is going to help. I think that there's still going to be people who um, they're going to get tired. They're going to get exhausted. They're going to make mistakes. And so, yes, I think it's definitely useful, but I don't think it's going to make things just go away. I agree. Uh, you know, and, and I'm happy to buy that silver bullet when someone when comes up with it. But yeah, uh, yeah as despite how many times I've been told somebody has it, I haven't found it yet. The one thing I, I want to jump in on is, you know, he talks about mitigation versus prevention. And it's been interesting as I've been talking to my peers lately, I'm seeing more and more effort, more and more budget switch from prevention to minimizing dwell time. How fast can we mitigate? How fast can we detect and interrupt, uh, disrupt that, you know, using the cyber kill chain verb, uh, how, how quickly can we disrupt that attack? So great question, thank you. Uh, so let's kind of jump into your topic here. Um, uh, zero days, uh, you know, first of all, your, your title, I love your title. Uh, as soon as I think of fire drill, uh, I think of that episode from The Office. Uh, I warn anybody that, that types in The Office and fire drills, you're probably gonna lose an hour of your life watching old uh, clips from The Office. But yeah, that that chaos, that, that crisis, and, and if I remember correctly, they're almost always Friday at 3 p.m. When, when some big zero day drops. So kind of talk me through uh, what brought you to this topic and, and where, you're, where you're going. So I think two things really kind of uh, made this come to, to, to mind. I have, I have scars from, um, from those zero days, uh, having to jump on those uh, emergency calls, those, those conference bridges. And, you know, everybody's jumping on, department heads are jumping on, managers and managers, managers are jumping on. And at the time I was the person who had to uh, push the config, right? So um, it was, the message was, we've got to resolve this right now, but don't screw up. Um, and the the stress was, was intense. And so you're trying to uh, identify, you're trying to uh, create resolution you're trying to test that, make sure that you're going through the right steps to make sure that uh, you've tested your solution, you've tested the patch or the configuration change, it's been peer reviewed. Um, and then you go to push it out. And I had experiences where pushing it out was flawless and easy, but there was one that I do recall where we, I pushed out and things started to go down uh, you know, within the network, which was obviously horrible and, and, and mortifying when you're right on that conference call trying to explain that what you did uh, uh, it didn't work and, and actually just made things worse and having to roll it back and, and feeling the, like the cold sweat on your back and you're going, gosh, am I even going to have a job tomorrow? Um, so those are, that's my experience with, with having to deal with those emergency calls and those fire drills um, and, and kind of thinking like, yeah, this is probably the worst day of my life right now. 
Um, so I don't want anybody to ever experience that. Um, the other piece to that is in my position now, um, I get to talk to a lot of companies uh, about the challenges they're facing. And obviously after Log4j, which uh, happened last December, and it was a massive uh, zero day vulnerability with an exploit that, that followed quickly. Um, getting to talk to companies about their experiences with that, um, with that vulnerability, what were their challenges? What was the success? Um, you know, where did, where did they, where did they really end up eating up a lot of time uh, and, and, and run into problems? And then, you know, for some companies, it was a, a validation of, of the policies, policies and procedures that they had. So for me, I think, and, and some of my colleagues, when we get together and we start talking about, you know, that particular experience, that's really where I think this came, this topic really um, was something I wanted to talk about. So that's great insight. I got to admit, uh, when you said rolling something back, that uh, triggered some PTSD in me. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so I, you, you've had some experiences. I'm sure Akamai has experiences. You've talked about some of the customers. What kind of lessons have you learned about these kind of vulnerabilities? So I think, I mean, there's been um, a lot of vulnerabilities out there. If you, it, Log4j was not an anomaly. Um, you know, Log4j was definitely huge. And, and we, we might not have seen the likes of it as far as, uh, you know, the, the, how big it was. But there have been other vulnerabilities uh, out there. Um, you know, Apache Struts was a huge vulnerability that made headlines because um, there were some companies, some pretty big name uh name companies that had gotten attacked and the exploit was from the Apache Struts vulnerability. Um, we have seen SolarWinds as a vulnerability, um, which was a product vulnerability. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, I would, if we go back to uh, several years ago, there was a huge vulnerability called Shellshock, or at least that was the marketing name. It was really just a vulnerability within Bash. And the fear at that time was that they didn't know where Bash was in all their environments, which is very similar to what we heard from Log4j. And one of the bigger fears was that there was IoT devices out there that could not be physically updated that had that Bash vulnerability, which meant it would always have the Bash vulnerability. There's been Heartbleed uh, and Poodle, which was uh, dealing with SSL and TLS encryption. Um, there's been Meltdown and Spectre, which was firmware. Um, now I want to, I want to, that one's an interesting one. So, uh, turns out, uh, I, the day I started at Charles Schwab, went over there to build out the threat intelligence program and, and a couple other programs. And the day I came in, uh, was a day that Meltdown Spectre kind of came out. And so the CISO was like, okay, I need you to give me an evaluation of the risk here. And I'm like, uh, I don't have a laptop yet. And so trying to find a one to you know, a laptop, get in, what's going on. The impact was huge, but if I remember correctly, that was never operationalized. It was, you know, would have been a huge impact, but, you know, how do you balance that? How do you, and that may not be a fair question right now, but it was just an interesting drill of, you know, the, the potential impact was huge, but it was never operationalized. Yeah, I think we, we definitely missed, uh, uh, a, a, a catastrophe right there within that. And you're right. Um, it, it, there was never really a, a real, real life, uh, exploitation of that. Uh, and I think that was kind of dodging a bullet there. Uh, but I think you got to look at it as you can't look at what, 
something could be, you've got to assume that whatever there is is a vulnerability. You've got to establish the risk um, or, or try to determine what the risk is and go ahead and patch it as if it's going to be um, utilized uh, you know, as soon as possible. Um, and, and I think that, you know, if I was to equate this to a natural disaster, I would say that that your example is like, you know, when the hurricane path is going a certain way and you, and you think, oh boy, it's going to come over, it's going to be bad. And then it, you know, overnight it shifts to a completely different place. Um, and I want to kind of bring in the idea of natural disaster because that's kind of the way I, I equate zero days. Um, in, in the, in this, in the sense that, you know there's going to be a natural disaster if you're living in certain areas. If you're living in the Northeast, you know there's probably going to be one or two blizzards that's going to hit um, the Northeast. Uh, so our headquarters is in Cambridge, um, uh, Massachusetts. So uh, I know that they have a lot of experience with, with getting hit with one or two blizzards a year. And then there's probably going to be some minor ones. And, you know, there's no date that they can predict for it at this point. But there is this understanding that it's going to happen. And so having policies and procedures around how to handle that makes sense to have and it's something they, they do have if you're in florida i mentioned hurricanes you know i grew up in florida you're going to have probably at least one hurricane warning a year um the government needs you know has has a plan for it you as a as a as a as a resident you know has a plan for it um how to deal with it you don't know the date of it but you know it's going to happen and, and i think with these zero days that's what we've got to look at it as is it's not an anomaly these are going to happen we'll probably have you know we'll talk about predictions we're probably going to have one or two of these next year, and and some and I would say one or one or actually we we'll probably have a handful, but one or two are going to be pretty big. Um, so, really, the question comes down to um, and, and kind of going back to this is you know we need to have um, we need to be able to prepare for this like we would prepare for a natural disaster. And and I'm going to be honest. Uh, I'm in Colorado. I know you're down there by the hurricanes. I would I would have gone with the blizzard. <laughs> uh, so so let's go to the kind of the next phase in so you're, you're talking about potential impact how do you identify the scope and impact of a zero day well i think you know when i talk to companies that's one of the biggest challenges that they have um, it definitely was was something that was brought up during log4j which was visibility visibility into their environment so log4j was a was a vulnerability into an Apache Java logging component. So you would think, well, that's easy. That you just got to figure out which which servers are running Apache. Uh, the only problem is that we've, I've got there's companies that I've talked to that have 150 to a thousand servers. They don't know where that all is, and they don't have uh, visibility at their fingertips. And so the challenge that they had, and the reason why it took so long for them to really start to get a handle on the zero day, was because it took so long to figure out what the scope was and scope matters. If you think about it, um, you know, there's a huge difference between having two servers being affected and having 150 servers being affected. Uh, it's gonna change your response. It's gonna change the risk and how you, how you look at it. But when you're trying to evaluate risk, you've got to look at um, where's the vulnerability? Uh, how, how many assets is it affecting? And then how easy is the exploit to, to take to carry out? Um, there are exploits out there where, you know, it takes days of listening and intercepting traffic and trying to understand and decrypt sequences. And you have to have certain components present. And if they're not present, the vulnerability doesn't work. And so there's a risk to that, right? But then there's the risk to like something like a log4j, which took a single request uh, from an application server 
and you can um, start to exploit the Log4j vulnerability. So, so something very quick to 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 uh, to exploit. So, I think when you when we talk about scope and and risk, I think those are two areas that companies are, are some companies I should say are really struggling with, and it's one of the reasons why it takes so long, and it's one of the reasons why it's a fire drill to them. So you mentioned something I found interesting there is is kind of around where it is and what it is. And, and we all know that, you know, MITRE has come up with the CVE, the Common Vulnerability and Exposures uh, Database. So, so we're all talking about the same thing. We're all referencing that. Uh, and it, as you get that CVE in, there, there might be a lag to to when, you know, that is available to, to be uh, patched. So... Where do you find the zero-day CVE exposures? So, I mean, you could, there's threat intelligence feeds you can get into. Um, you know, if you have a research group, you can. There are certain formats. Um, you know, I think the Log4j vulnerability exploit POC went to GitHub. Um, so, I, I really think falling back on threat intelligence feeds um, can help you understand not only where the threat and when the exploit was released, but also um, how, how likely that exploit is or how easy it is to implement. Um, I think that's kind of critical to uh, being better informed on, on what you're dealing with. And then where do you find, how do you map that in your own environment? Where do you find that internally? So um, you mean as far as finding where the vulnerability, like where your assets are? Yeah, and is it in the code and the operating system and those kind of things? Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, yeah, CVEs could be in lots of places, um, which is a great answer, right? It could be anywhere. Um, it could be your own code, right? It, uh, you're, so you've got to track, you know, is it in your developer's code that they're creating for their applications? Developers also have a tendency now to use open source and third-party application software within their own application. So... Um, and, it, and it makes sense from a development standpoint why create uh, something from scratch when, when something's already been created. Um, the concern, though, is a lot of times I think developers feel like if it's open source, it's been vetted from a security perspective. Oh, it's been sped out on, on this site for three years. Somebody must have looked at it from a, from a security perspective. So um, we're going to be able to glaze over that. And, and I think that's that can get you into trouble because um, you can't assume that open source means it's been somebody from uh, has, has thoroughly looked at it to see if there's any vulnerabilities. Um, Third-party software I mentioned. So not only are you having to track your own software and open source, but you could be using components that are coming from third parties. Um, and then there's you know there's the the, the software that that's supporting your application. It's the operating system. Um, it could be in appliances. Uh, so you've got you know network appliances that might that that might be where the vulnerability is. Uh, it could be in you know your routers, your switches, things like that. And that is a whole you've got to handle that a completely different way than than your own code. And then you know um, it could even be in things like IoT devices, right? So you know when you developed or when you when you sent out that IoT device um, or the IoT device that might be within your when you're in your manufacturing environment um, is that where that vulnerability could, could, it could be in any of those areas, depending on um, the software for all of that. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, and I can now kind of see the, through your answer, how you map back to the different kind of vulnerabilities, uh, where you might be finding those and how you might be dealing with those. That makes sense. Um, so, so let's go away from the technology and talk about who should own this. 
uh, and who should be responsible for for this and who should be a stakeholder? So, yeah, I mean, and another one, that's another area where I think if um, I think companies tend to struggle with at right in the middle of zero day is uh, who's the owner, uh, because it really depends on where the vulnerability is. Um, we mentioned um, I mentioned, you know, could be in an, an appliance. Um, and, and if it's in an appliance, then then the the the, own, the stakeholders could be the person who's owns the relationship with that vendor, and it could be the 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 person who's updating that or, or responsible for updating that appliance. Um, if it's in the application, then it could be the application group and the application security group. Um, and so it 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 really boils down to being able to map what type of vulnerability it is in. So where is that CVE? Um, and then who's responsible for that uh, really boils down to um, kind of figuring out who typically is, is, is patching it, but it could also switch over to um, uh, the security group that's responsible for it. And, you know, in, in some situations, the, the responsibility could actually change while you're going through um, remediation. Uh, you might end up finding out that you've got a third-party piece of software that you can't isolate, you can't fix, you can't patch, you might actually have to remove it. Who's gonna make that call? Who's gonna be ultimately responsible for that? And at that point, you might wanna be looking at, well, that would probably be, need to map up to like the CIO, who's gonna to have to kind of weigh the business impact on the risk impact. So I think it makes sense to start an InfoSec if InfoSec is the one that's really kind of focusing on um, looking at zero days and vulnerabilities and, and being able to identify them. But I think after that, it, it needs to move depending on where that vulnerability is, whether that needs to go to uh, vendor management, um, to go to, to the vendor that, that you've got, or whether it needs to go to the application group or to um, software management. Um, I, think, I think that should be mapped out. And I think kind of going back to um, kind of a racy type scenario where you're able to say, look, if it's in this, it needs to go to these groups. And if it's in applications, it should go here. And everybody has a role and stakeholders are identified. And if, and that needs to be done ahead of time so that people aren't being left out. Uh, yeah. All of that's been considered. And and for those of you who haven't been uh, involved in, in some kind of mapping like that of responsibilities, RACI stands for Responsibility, ac Responsible, Accountable, Consulted, and Informed. And so, you know, you should always have one person responsible, uh, other people, depending on the level of, of, of stakeholder, you know, you may need to inform public relations, you may need to consult legal, um, but all this kind of need to be mapped out with clear responsibilities, triggers for different phases. And one of the things that, that is huge here, you've got to take it through an exercise. You've got to actually validate this. Uh, and sometimes we get in this, oh, we have a zero day all the time, so we don't really need to do exercise to validate this. I will tell you, because of those great examples of the different kinds and different stakeholders, it really is important that race, yeah, I think that's a brilliant point. And, and exercising that to validate that your race is working. Uh, I'm sure you've had experiences around people that where that race didn't work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know of ones where, uh, you go to reach out to that contact, and that contact had no idea that that table exists or that they were they were listed in it. So, um, so how are they going to be able to help you out if, if they're not even aware of of what's going on? So, not only do you need to have the contacts, but you need to make sure that the contacts know the roles that they play 
and have procedures in place that they are, are familiar with so that they go, okay, it's coming to me. I now know why it's coming to me. And I know, I now know what is, uh, what I need to do. And that's all laid out. So we talked about the RACI and, and I mentioned kind of the phases or steps. So what can an organization to do to be better prepared for these? So I think there's a couple of areas that we really need to focus on. Visibility is one of them. Um, and I think it's one of the biggest struggles that I saw with Log4j was companies trying to quickly identify those, um, those affected servers. And there's, there's, there's lots of things that you could do to kind of help with that. Um, you know, what come to mind for me is things like asset management systems. Um, to be able to kind of reference those asset management systems to see if, you know, certain processes or certain versions of software are running. Um, if you're dealing with an application, then what would make sense is a, uh, an SBOM or a uh, software build of materials. Um, and the, uh, that is going to be able to, you know, as developers are creating the application, if they're using open source or they're using third-party software, being able to list that out so that um, people can reference that um, and, and be able to tell, okay, where's the vulnerability? Is it here? Look at the SBOM, understand, uh, is that something that is in the application or, or, or isn't uh, in the application? I'm gonna have to poke back at you a little here. You know, first of all, uh, asset management. I don't know any of, anybody I've run into that has tremendous confidence in their asset management. And then you're talking about the SBOM, which is, a an order of magnitude in my mind, more complex. Um, and we're, I think we're early in that journey. I don't know that anybody's really had a great success story there. Uh, and Jonathan, I really appreciate your insight here on uh, ICS 100. Um, you know, it, it is good. I, I'm a huge fan of NIST, uh, the NIST incident response cycle. I'm a huge fan of MITRE and the TAC framework. And this is a, a great example of, a, of another reference where we can go to best practices. Uh, and again, as somebody who thinks about the class action lawsuit after a major incident, as somebody who, who survives multiple audits, internal audits, external audits, customer audits, these kind of references are huge. Yeah, and I hear what you're saying about, about SBOMs um, and asset management. I think part of that, though, is cultural, right? It's it's getting it into the culture of uh, and the environment, um, and and uh, you know you can almost say that with a lot of what we're talking about. Um, there are culture and and uh, corporate environments where um, doing this this legwork and this preparation ahead of time makes perfect sense. Some environment, some corporate and, and culture uh, culture and some corporate environments that are going to struggle with with this much preparation. Uh, you know, they're kind of chasing what's right in front of them and. And, you know, they're, they might be going, you know what, you know, it, this might be too much. Um, so I think, I think that you're right. The, the, the SBOM is definitely something that I, we see uh, needs a little maturity, but I definitely think that it's something to pursue and something to start working towards. There are other, um, uh, you know, solutions like security solutions that can help in this area when it comes to visibility. Um, you've got endpoint solutions and, um, you know, if you think of, um, endpoint solutions with a software agent or, uh, there's segmentation out there with a software agent where you can do queries of your assets to see what's running and where, I think that's, I think that really would, um, 
dramatically cut down on time if you had the ability to do something like an OS query, which is a, a query to all OSs, including Linux, Unix, and um, in Windows, where you can say, hey, is this process running on you? If it is, you know, basically report back. And you can immediately at that point, or within a matter of you know, 30 minutes to an hour, you have a, a complete understanding of exactly what assets are affected by the vulnerability. Um, and and that, that took place in Log4j and certain companies did a really good job of visibility there, utilizing that kind of um, technology and that visibility. So I think that if you're looking at, you know, how, do I, how do I dramatically reduce time and make this less stressful? You got to fix visibility. You got to address what. How are you going to uh, identify where things are? And then, um, you know, when it comes to evaluating the exploit, you can lean on to threat intelligence feeds. Um, and then, you know, to better prepare for what you need to do, you know, you need to understand what are your tools for mitigation or for remediation, um, and be able to list those out so that everybody knows that that's what's there. And then put all of the things that we just talked about, including the RACI and everything, into a runbook. Um, and I think a runbook makes sense because, again, there's so many different ways this could turn in different directions. It could go to vendor management. It could go all the way to the CIO. It could, you know, you don't know where it's going to go. So how about listing all possibilities, have it in a book so that when someone's under stress, they can open up the book and they have clear direction on where to go. So. I heard incident response, and I think incident response is maybe a, a good place to start to kind of open things up. But I think that after a while, you've got to start moving that over to like a crisis management. Yeah, and I think, and it's interesting you say that. Jonathan had a question right around there of, you know, uh, you know, should incident response or the NIST incident response uh, cycle be what we're we're doing? But it sounds like you're already leading in there that that it's it's somewhere else. So walk me through that. So I think incident response um, makes sense to a certain point, but you, you I think you need, honestly, I think you need more flexibility. There's other things that we're not really taking into consideration, which is things like communication. Um, when you're dealing with this, and I'll use Akamai as, as an example. Uh, Akamai is a corporation that has a large infrastructure. We've got you know, hundreds of thousands of servers around the world, right? but we're also a security vendor. So when a vulnerability hits us or when a vulnerability comes out like Log4j, we have two things we've got to do. We've got to look at our own infrastructure to see and um, quickly uh, find remediation on, on that so that we're not vulnerable. Um, but we also have to create a solution or create uh, detections for um, some of our other solutions that are, in, that are being used by customers. Well, that requires communication, it requires different types of communication. Because I know as soon as we get a vulnerability that's released, companies are coming to us saying, where are you with this? Are you vulnerable? Where are you, where are you with your remediation? And we need to have somebody writing communication on what we're saying. And, and that probably needs to be coming from somewhere other than incident response. Um, and then at the same time for Akamai, we also have- uh, And I, I don't wanna you know, jump in. When I, when I talk about incident response cycle and, and NIST, uh, for, for people that didn't grow up in this and, and haven't been in, in the pits fighting that specific fight. The incident response cycle is very specific. It's prepare, so, so deploy your tools. It's detect, monitor your tools, have some kind of a, a SIM or, or some kind of correlation engine where you're, you're getting those threats in, you're watching those endpoint detection, you're watching that micro-segmentation. 
then you're going to respond. You're going to deploy some kind of mitigation. You're going to recover, uh, and then you're going to have that review. And and so you're saying, and I and I'm not disagreeing, but as I look at that, that seems to be very SOC oriented, very threat intelligence SOC forensics team oriented. And I like where you're going, where it needs to be a broader. And it, I think it ties back into your racy comment now that I'm thinking about it, that it needs to have a bigger team. So I, I just wanted to highlight what that cycle was for, for people that may not have, have been in there before. Go ahead. No, no. And, and good point. Um, where, as you know, as far as um, I think a lot of things make sense for, for when it comes to incident response. I just think that um, this can get complicated and we need we need to be flexible on that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that that was really kind of the point of of making sure that we've got this more in crisis management because you're going to need communication heads that are going to have to you know, create messaging. We're going to have to deliver that messaging to customer. We're going to have to uh, allow it to move wherever it needs to go, depending on how you're how you're mitigating. Yeah, I, and I think that's interesting. Um, you know, that that messaging is huge, internal messaging, external messaging, stakeholder messaging, uh, really kind of walk me through what happens at Akamai around that incident response crisis management uh, as far as all that, that, you know, communications you're talking about. So, I mean, uh, we've, you know, the idea is to run with, with us, we, we run teams in parallel, right? We've got things going on. So we've got, uh, um, you know, our, our InfoSec and our, our development group and, and our, uh, our platform folks are, 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 are trying to, are going to go ahead and um, identify where the vulnerability is, if, if it's even there. Uh, and there's, can't tell you how many times we, we get this, uh, you know, how is this affecting you? And it's like, good news, it's not, we're, we're good. Um, we don't have whatever it is that's vulnerable. Um, but if it is, then then their job is to be able to understand and create a scope and risk and uh, and kind of give us um, that you know get get that out uh, so that we can start to remediate. But then we've got our you know our our uh, sometimes it might be marketing, sometimes it, it might be it might be infosec, but um, we've got other people that are being brought in for messaging. And obviously, you don't want. You don't want the person who's trying to figure out how to solve it to be also the messenger, right? So um, if we kind of go back to that to that racy kind of ideas, um, uh, you know, you don't want to put too much on on, a, on an individual, especially if you can uh, spread it out. So it makes sense that the person who's writing the messaging is is not the person who's who's involved in in, in remediation. Um, so you've got a lot of kind of teams in parallel that are working together. Um, so you're still going to get that conference bridge. But at least everybody knows their role, and um, and is and it, it's almost like um, kind of going down the list as to um, a, a kind of a checklist of okay, are we here? Calling people out and, and making sure everybody's kind of doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, similar experience at Charles Schwab. You know, you you've got to you've going to have a federal regulator, the OC uh, Office of Comptroller of Currency, is going to be calling and asking if you're vulnerable. You're going to have internal stakeholders. Someone who heard it on NPR is going to be calling your call center. So someone who's used to helping reset passwords is suddenly going to be asked, is my money vulnerable to log4j or, or whatever they heard? So yeah, 
I think that's an excellent point. You know, it is a broader messaging. It's incredibly important to keep everybody on the same message. Uh, You know, you don't want somebody to say, no, we're not vulnerable in the call center and then publicly say, you know, we remediated where we were vulnerable. Turns out that's a bad idea. So (laughs) walk me through uh, some of this uh, mitigation methods that you mentioned. So, yeah, I mean, you need to have kind of um, have all these tools and, and, and um, techniques called out ahead of time so that you can kind of walk through it. Because obviously things like patching, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's kind of like the, the low hanging fruit. If there's a patch, great, apply the patch. Um, although I would say that there's, there's things that you can do in parallel to help that because simply applying a patch, that can take time. So having security controls in place that can buy you time. Um, is, is also something you can put into play um, while you're doing that. So um, if there is a patch, that's great. But for a lot of companies, patching 150 servers could take two, three, four weeks um, to, it, it, you know, to be realistic. So what do you do in the meantime? Um, and if it's something as simple as an application that's internet facing, well, a web application firewall could, could be that security control that can intercept that traffic, ex- examine it for the, uh, the exploit and, and then be able to deny it so that it gives your, your, your internal group time to, to patch the servers they need to patch. And I know I've heard of uh, marketing call it, you know, virtual patching, which um, I'm not the greatest fan of, but, but I'll, I'm gonna use it just because people might've heard of that. But the idea that, you know, go ahead and put something in place that can, that can buy you time, that can mitigate the exploit so that you can, you can resolve the, the vulnerability. Um, there's also, you know, what happens if you can't patch? Um, can you do configuration changes? Is there something that you can do to harden uh, the operating system if it's if it's an operating system vulnerability? Is there a service or something that you can turn off that's not going to necessarily uh, negatively impact your business? Um, is there ways to isolate that process out um, so that it's um, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of changing things down so that we're just not allowing that to go out to the internet, for example. Um, security config- or configurations and even security configuration changes can, might, you know, a lot of times are the answer until there's a patch that comes out. Because I would say that, I, you know, and you can tell me, Steve, I think that having a patch when the exploit um, is, is just going into the wild is not common. So it's interesting. There are some, you know, major cloud providers, uh, different companies, depending on their size and the industry involved, uh, may get early notification. Um, and so uh, they, they have a chance to get ahead of the power curve before it's going to be in the wild. But for most of us, um, we're getting real time. Hey, this is a vulnerability. Uh, and typically then, you know, what I'm seeing is, okay, uh, this, you know, something like Meltdown, which we talked about earlier, that pitch may be weeks coming out. Right. Uh, something like Log4j, uh, I just need to go to the latest version. So, I mean, it, it's just a matter of me moving. Uh, and then there's everything in between where the, the, the company may have been notified, so the patch is ready on day one. The company may not have been notified, so, you know, it, it's something else. It's... Uh, you gave an example of, of, a, of a third-party vendor application that's suddenly compromised. Yeah. Uh, the cameras are compromised. I don't know my cameras are going to be patched. 
And so, so then it's a whole different thing. And, and you mentioned this mitigation, it's, you know, ring fencing those, it's, it's putting something around that, that, that gets it. So ideally in a perfect world, the day it comes out, I think you mentioned WAF or firewall or endpoint protection. I'd like those to get a quick, you know, interruption of that attack chain and then eventually be able to patch. So yeah. it's awful in two phase. And by the way, how quickly can I patch? If I'm in a heavily regulated industry, 72 hours is aggressive. Wow. How long, you might know this, how long did it take before Log4j exploit started to hit? Um, yeah, so the vulnerability came out and I think the very next day on GitHub, there was a proof of concept that was released on the exploit. And then we saw it really start to pick up within about two days from there, um, as far as uh, mm -hmm. everybody kind of jumping on, from a hacker perspective, everybody jumping on board and trying to, to find out um, and use that explo the, the exploitation in it. And I'm guessing multiple variations, so yeah. iterative battle. Oh yeah, it so was, yeah, yeah. It was it was like two weeks of back and forth with uh, the, you know, it's it's amazing the obfuscation tools and stuff that attackers are able to use use now um, to to kind of uh, really kind of push um, getting around security. But you know, you mentioned um, you mentioned ring, uh, you know, being able to ring fence. I definitely think that you know. As you're looking at and evaluating um, your vulnerabilities, definitely having security controls in play that um, separate, that, that are kind of in between you and the, and the wild, you and the internet. Um, and you mentioned, you mentioned ring fence. That's, you know, being kind of separating out the assets that are vulnerable to the rest of the network, which kind of play in two separate ways, right? They, they can actually prevent the... Um, the infiltration or the, the utilization of that exploit from the network. So if somebody's trying to attack it inside the network, you can you can you can start to shore that up with a security control like that. But I think one of the things that I don't think companies are thinking about enough, or security companies aren't thinking, or security groups aren't thinking about enough, is what happens if it's actually exploited. Like if you get to it, and you've got so many servers. By the time you get to a certain one, what if that one's already exploited? And I think that having a security control that can also prevent um, that asset from, you know, being able to go anywhere in the network, it's kind of like, um, you just got to quarantine, right? You just got to kind of look at it as that thing could get infected. Let's go ahead and quarantine it. Um, Dad, the internet, in the network. And I, I would love if I could do that all the time, but then sometimes it's just a self-denial service. Um, so sometimes it's ring fencing for additional monitoring and sometimes it's isolation, but yeah, either way, uh, the faster you can get the appropriate uh, monitoring or isolation, uh, that is the home run. And then ultimately patching. Yeah. And then there's the what if you can't do anything, right? Um, you've, you've run through all your lists. You can't isolate it. There is no patch. There's no security configuration change or, or anything that you can do. Uh, and that's when the really hard decision comes into play. And that's one of the reasons why I keep talking about uh, processes of procedure, because at some point there's going to have to be a really difficult decision to be made as far as if you've got to pull something out that's going to affect customers, uh, maybe it's a piece of your application that a company can use or a, a customer is using, um, somebody has to make that decision on whether or not to actually pull it um, or are they going to deal with the risk and and, and 
that's a call that definitely sounds like something that would be, you know, at the sea level, um, having to make that tough call. So, um, you know, that's kind of where I say, you know, it can, the, 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 this kind of process could end up all the way up at the CIO level, just depending on what the scenario is. Yeah, I agree. Up there for decision as opposed to just awareness and tracking communications. Um, and that's not unusual because all the time we're talking about, at a minimum, reprioritizing what people are doing. Yeah. You know, if, it, if it's the CIO has to say, okay, you know, we're going to stop these three projects, move all the engineers off those projects for the next week and focus on patching, um, you know, that's a, at a minimum it's going to be an opportunity cost, you know, and it may be an operational cost. If, as you said, uh, I no longer can trust this code. Uh, it, it's going to give people access to, you know, customer accounts or personal information or proprietary information. I'm not willing to take that risk. I'll take the operational hit. Those are never easy decisions. No, nope, it's not. So I, I do want to poke at you again, just just happens to be that I'm going to poke at you again. All right. Uh, so this is this seems to be very focused on the technical side. And and earlier we were talking in that racy and there's processes and there's people and their relationship. Where where might there be opportunity to to do some kind of mitigation in, say, processes? So I guess I was looking at process or mitigation from a technical perspective, right? So um, it's kind of the, the the tools that you're going to use to, to kind of hopefully solve the problem. Uh, I but it's but at the same time fall back and you know the policies and procedures is kind of what leads to you know hopefully the the end the end is um, remediation, right? It's 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 finally getting to that point where you can solve it. But you know the policy, the procedure—that's all the glue, and that's that's what's going to make it all work and get us to that point. Yeah, and I, I will tell you the one part of those processes is that, you know you talked about one person doing everything. Again, I've got somebody working with vendor management to to go check every third party that you know we figured out our problem with Log4j. We now need to know all, anybody that has our critical data. Right. And and vendor management doesn't necessarily have the skills to know how to ask the right questions, how to determine if they've taken the right measures. Uh, you know, do we have the contract authority to go in and, and demand an audit level response? Um, you know, are we asking them, you know, and they're going through the same, they're going through the exact same fire drill we're going through. Uh, and we're waiting on their answer before we can answer because they have some critical data. So they're part of that risk posture. And maybe you covered this in your RACI already. But, yeah, I think that's where processes are part of this. Um, and it, it just goes back to, to that being a complete part of the program. Um, kind of a different question, mm -hmm. you know. As I listened to you, uh, I loved the way you categorized those. You know, those were almost run books. You know, you've got products, you've got processes, you've got third parties, you've got IoT. The way you categorize those different ones is as run books inside a plan made perfect sense. Moving from incident response to crisis management, getting that communication, getting that broader racy, all made sense. 
Um, I guess one of the things that from my history, you know, my, my scar tissue is never let a good crisis go to waste. Is this, is this also something you would throw in there? Uh, I laugh because this reminds me of, um, so when my wife asked me to do something around the house, like handyman stuff, um, I, I utilize that as like, that's an excuse for me to go out and buy a new tool. So, uh, oh, my wife wants me to put something together. That, that's going to require a cordless drill. Uh, the, the door stuck in the door jam. That's a cordless uh, sander right there. Um, so I, I, I like what you're, where you're going with this. And, and yes, I mean, I definitely think that one of the few times that you actually have everybody thinking about security and everybody kind of looking back to say, gosh, did we handle that right? Could we've handled that better? Is right after or right during, hopefully after, you know, hopefully it's, you resolve it, you work on resolution, then you can start thinking about um, lessons learned. So that's a perfect time to look at um, getting more from, or, or, you know, getting, getting more things under a security policy, increasing the, uh, you know, the responsibility that, of, of certain security controls. I, I've, I saw it with, um, with certain customers where um, non-critical applications got thrown into a, 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 an application firewall policy. Um, some of them just turned on log4j. And it's like, why not at that point take advantage of the fact that you just did that to go ahead and tune the whole thing? And I think um, if you can do that, um, you know, during a zero day, this is the this is the time. It's I don't want to say it's it's uh, I would say it's probably the probably the best time uh, while people are, are thinking about it for you to kind of mention yeah. some other things. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Perfect. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, really appreciate the time today. Hopefully this was useful. Uh, you should have Kim back next week. So, so no substitutes next week. Uh, Sean, final thought, one minute. Uh, real quick. Have, have, I think we've, we've, we've kind of banged it to death, but uh, you can resolve a lot of things by having a process and, and processes and plans in place. Please keep in mind that once the, the, uh, the exploit goes into a POC, uh, the clock is ticking. There's only so much time that you're going to get to be able to uh, put security into play or to fix it because um, you're, you're going to be attacked. So the quicker that you get things remediated uh, and resolved, um, the, the better your security posture. And all of that can really be boiled down to um, how prepared were you in to begin with. Awesome. Great advice. Uh, again, um, Practice, processes, exercising uh, should not be a fire drill, should not be a crisis. Great advice. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? 
FutureCon events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at futureconhq. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.